morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. <clears throat> I just wanted to make one announcement at the beginning, uh, a reminder that this week begins our nine-month program, Liberating Dharma. I'm really excited about this program, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning in it uh, together with all of you. And Circe and Robin and Tasha and Sandra have really worked hard to create an experience that will guide us in being allies in the struggle for racial justice and social harmony that's grounded in the Buddha Dharma. So this is truly doing a work of the Dharma in the world. You can still sign up if you're interested. There's no fee for registering. This program is freely offered so that there are no barriers to participation. We're grateful for contributions and support of the program and Donna for its teachers according to your means. Um, they've done an amazing amount of work together creating this outstanding program and we hope to make it a regular offering at Appamata to repeat it again <clears throat> the way we do with the precepts program. So I believe it'll be a model for other sanghas and I hope it can be written up for one of our Buddhist journals as well. So please do sign up. There is a link in the registration form uh, to the registration form from the event on the calendar as well as from the teachings tab at the website you'll see liberating dharma there's a page for that so watch the apamata emails for other updates and news of upcoming intensives check the calendar there's usually links in for each event um, so um, so that you can connect so today I want to give not so much a Dharma talk as a reflection about the role of our Sangha in the world and an opportunity to discuss together about that role. So our name, Apamata, was the Buddha's last word and last instruction. As most of you know, it means mindful, energetic care. We use care in two ways, as taking care of and as taking care with. You don't need me to tell you you're in a highly, highly charged moment in the history of our nation and our species. When we think of mindful, energetic care, we are typically thinking in interpersonal or individual terms, how to have apamata for my partner, my child, my colleagues at work. We think in limited time scales, hours, days, weeks. This is probably aggravated by the common Zen instruction to be aware of present moment experience. Most of us assume this means a very focused lens of attention within a very small time frame. The moment seems like an instant. But there's a much larger sense of a moment that is vast in time and space. We have all experienced pivotal moments <clears throat> that have echoed far beyond the space in which we experience them and echoed through great reaches of time. A moment of anger that ends a marriage, a decision to go to war, the taking of a vow, all have enormous consequences that forever alter the, traje the trajectory of time and the contours of space in our lives. In fact, it's hard to see where and when it is in our lives that these ripples do not reach. We're now at just such a fateful moment in our long evolutionary history as humans on this planet. Everywhere we look, the situations are both fraught and inescapable. We are bound up in them with every living being, and our present moment responsibility has infinite future repercussions. What can one being do? First, pay attention. This means to notice what we are paying attention to, refraining from both compulsive checking of the news every hour and avoiding or denying present moment realities. We practice zazen so that we can observe and refine the quality of our attending and to be conscious of our habit patterns of attention. Our aspiration is for wise and compassionate att attention. Two, do not despair. In extraordinary circumstances, despair robs us of time and energy we needed for attending and responding. It can be paralyzing, just when we most need to act. It shuts down our creative function, our wisdom, and our compassion. Our practice, our curiosity, our connections with others, and our actions are the antidote to despair. Three, do what you can. Understand that you are a small piece in a large puzzle. Without your part, no matter how small, the picture is not complete. Our ongoing practice question is, 
what is the best use of me? Given my human body, mind, experience, skills, and resources, how do I express my Bodhisattva vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings? This means also to let go of what you are not able to do and to avoid your comparing your own actions to what others are doing. Non-doing is also a form of action. It can be skillful or harming. We practice to be aware of the difference. Four, do not be afraid. Practice the five remembrances. First, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. Second, I am of the nature to have ill health. There's no way to escape having ill health. Third, I am of the nature to die. There's no way to escape death. Fourth, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There is no escape from being separated from them. And finally, my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. In the Mother of the Buddhas, Lex Hickson offers this teaching from the Prajnaparamita Sutra in a chapter called Victory Over Fear. The whole chapter is worth reading, but here's an excerpt. Lord Buddha, the Bodhisattva whose mind stream flows as perfect wisdom is never terrified or even subtly anxious. Why? Because totally imbued with the living power of Mother Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, the practitioner has the physical, moral, intellectual, and spiritual strength to remain unwavering and undivided in transcendent contemplation while ceaselessly and skillfully engaging in compassionate action. This diamond awareness consists of a single concentrated current of prayer. May living beings never be diverted from the path of universal conscious enlightenment, which is their own true nature, empty of any separate or self-existence. The selfless and luminous mind stream that flows onward in this unthinkable manner is flowing as Prajnaparamita. Five, take the long view. When you look back on this time years from now, will you be satisfied that you have fulfilled the pure potential of your human life through your thoughts, words, and actions? Imagine writing a letter for future generations in which you describe these times and how you came forth in them. What will you say to those who are studying this history? Ultimately, our smallish sun will burn out, the earth will grow silent and still, and life will vanish. But that has not happened yet and will not happen for a few million years. So we can make a great difference in what happens between now and then. The Buddha had a vast cosmological vision. He spoke of witnessing many eons of world expansion and world contraction, of chiliocosms that include billions of universes. What we decide, think, say, and do echoes across all of them. Six, this is the only world we will ever know. What does it mean to take care of it? What does it need from us right now? Clearly, we must stop harming and begin restoring a healthy balance. Not everyone is willing to do this. Can we proceed anyway, enfolding more and more people into a vision for a life-sustaining future? Some people have succumbed to despair and fury, believing it is already too late. But it is never too late to align with life and support well-being in whatever ways we are able to do so. We can't know what impact it might have or how it might encourage others to turn toward life. Seven, stay committed, connected in a web of mutual trust, respect, and care. We are all in this together and we can make use of our spiritual practice to deepen and strengthen our social fabric. Together we can envision, design, and bring into being a future filled with joy, beneficial work in a thriving world, and warm friendships. No one, 
no matter how destructive, can take this away from us. We stand with life and we stand together. We honor differences as they are the source of wisdom. Disagreement is the door to discovery and creativity, not a battle to be won. It is not a disruption of social harmony, it is the engine for it. We are building community in a shared framework of Buddhist teachings as a scaffold, not a doctrine for our ethical, compassionate, and wise, compassionate and collective action. What should we do together that cannot be done alone? This is our ongoing inquiry and practice at the Sangha level. Eight, waging nonviolence. We may need to come together as a community in the days ahead to respond to the ever-changing political situation. Whether our political affiliations are democratic or republican, the election is sure to be fraught. We are committed to nonviolence, but that does not mean we are committed to non-action or apathy. There may be a time when our active support of life is called for, and we should think together as a community about how we respond. I'm going to read a recent piece from Waging Nonviolence. Here's their description of what they do. Waging Nonviolence is an independent, nonprofit media platform dedicated to providing original reporting and expert analysis of social movements around the world. We believe that when ordinary people organize, they have incredible power and are the drivers of social change, not politicians, billionaires, or corporations. In short, people power is our beat, and we cover the ways it is shaping our world, grounded in both history and the latest research. So this is their article. 10 Things You Need to Know to Stop a Coup. It's by Daniel Hunter. Daniel Hunter is a trainer and organizer with Training for Change, and has trained thousands of activists, including ethnic minorities in Burma, pastors in Sierra Leone, independence activists in Northeast India, environmentalists in Australia, and Indonesian religious leaders. He writes, while keeping people focused on a strong, robust election process is a must, we also need to prepare for a coup. We have a president who has openly said he might not respect the outcome of our election. We have to be ready if he claims victory before votes are counted tries to stop counting, or refuses to accept a loss. Some days I feel confident it will happen. A poll showed over 75% of Democrats think this is possible, and a shocking 30% of Republicans do too. Other days I feel confident this is, a tough, this is tough talk from a president not good at planning ahead. Still, he is good at the kind of misdirection that can keep us complacent and reactionary which could lead us to stop doing the important groundwork of getting out the vote, protecting the post office, and fighting voter suppression. We need a plan to prevent a Trump takeover, and this anti-coup research shows the way. So what I'm offering isn't asking us to stop what we're doing now. Instead, I'm part of an effort called Choose Democracy, which is prepping people for the possibility of a coup while keeping people focused on a strong, robust election process. After all, the best way to stop a coup is not to have one. These guidelines are drawn from a wide body of experience and evidence from the many countries that have experienced a coup since World War II. You can read some fuller case studies from Choose Democracy or a longer evidence-based handbook for this moment from Hold the Line, A Guide to Defending Democracy. So here's, here are his points. First, don't expect results election night. Election season 2020 is shaping up to be very unusual. Many mail-in ballots may not be counted until days or weeks after election day. Since Democrats are expected to use them more frequently than Republicans, voter tallies are expected to swing toward Democrats post-election night. They call it a blue shift. <clears throat> As a result, a wave of confusion may unfold starting election night. The strange electoral college <coughs> creates multiple intervention points. After election night, November 3rd, trumped up claims of fraudulent ballots may cause a wayward attorney general or other government officials 
to try halting counts or excluding ballots. As election results start coming in, the message needs to come through loud and clear, count all the votes, and honor the result. On December 14th, the delegates of the Electoral College meet and vote for the state's outcome. This is typically done without fanfare, but in contested states, we might see governors and state legislatures sending in different results, one reflecting the results from voters, the other claiming it's a fraud and we know best. This is worrying in swing states like Pennsylvania, where the governor and state legislature are of different parties. All these issues then get resolved on January 6th by the new Congress. And if the House and Senate don't agree about the result, then a convoluted process unfolds where the newly seated House, via one state, one vote, determines the president. Meanwhile, the Senate, by majority, votes for the new vice president. So there's a visual breakdown of these steps that shut down DC. During this time, expect false flags and outlandish claims. Be very cautious with news. Don't simply pass on whatever seems like dramatic examples of wrongdoing, but take the time to check if it has been verified, already debunked, or from a source you don't trust. Encourage people in your community to prepare for some uncertain weeks. As election results start coming in, the message needs to come through loud and clear. Count all the votes and honor the result. Two, do call it a coup. One reason to use the language of a coup is that people know it's wrong and a violation of democratic norms, even if they're not familiar with the exact definition of a coup. We have to be able, we have to be ready to declare loudly and strongly, this is a coup. Language like election tampering or voter suppression signal deterioration of the democratic process. But if we get ourselves into a coup situation, like where Trump just won't go, we need, to help pe we need people to help people help our country move into a psychic break. We know it's a coup if the government stops counting votes, declares someone a winner who didn't get the most votes, or allows someone to stay in power who didn't win the election. These are sensible red lines that people can grasp right away and that the majority of Americans continue to believe in. People who do power grabs always claim they're doing it to save democracy or claim they know the real election results. So this doesn't have to look like a military coup with one leader ordering the opposition to be arrested. If any of those three principles are violated, we have to declare loudly and strongly, this is a coup. <coughs> Three, know that coups have been stopped by regular folks. Coup attempts have happened all over the world and over half have failed. That's because coups are hard to orchestrate. They are a violation of norms that require quick seizure of multiple levels of institutions with a claim that they are the rightful heir. Coups tend to fail when government institutions, like elections, are trusted. There is an active citizenry and other nations are ready to become involved. The role of citizenry is crucial. That's because during the period right after a coup attempt, when the new government is claiming it is the real government, all the institutions have to decide who to listen to. To start preparing, talk to at least five people who would go into the streets with you. The safest way to take to the streets is with people you know and trust. A failed coup in Germany in 1920 gives an example. The population felt beaten down by defeat in World War I and high unemployment. Right-wing nationalists organized a coup and got the help of a few generals to seize government buildings. The deposed government fled, but ordered all citizens to obey them. No enterprise must work as long as the military dictatorship reigns, they declared. Widespread nonviolent resistance quickly began. Printers refused to print the new government's newspapers. Civil servants refused to carry out any orders from the coup. And leaflets calling for an end to the coup were spread by airplane and by hand. There's a story of the coup leader wandering up and down the corridors looking in vain for a secretary to type up his proclamations. The acts of resistance grew and eventually the democratic government, which still had great problems, 
was returned to power. The moments after a coup are moments for heroism among the general population. It's how we make democracy real. Four, be ready to act quickly and not alone. Typically, power grabs are organized in secret and launched suddenly. Most campaigns that defeat coups do so in days. The Soviet Union in 1991 took three days. France in 1961 took four days. And Bolivia in 1978 took 16 days. Mass direct action may be the only way to stop Trump from stealing the election. It's rare for any country's leader to publicly admit they might not respect the results of an election. There's some good news in that because people who stop coups regularly have the chance to get training, warning, or preparation. In that way, we're ahead of the game. A group of DC insiders called the Transition Integrity Project ran multiple simulations, such as what might happen if Biden won by a slim margin, or if Trump simply declares victory when there's no clear winner. In every simulation, they included that a show of numbers in the streets may be decisive. Regular people make the difference. To start preparing, talk to at least five people who would go into the streets with you. The safest way to take to the streets is with people you know and trust. Talk to people you know in civil service and various roles about how they could non-comply with coup attempts. Use this time to get yourself ready to act. <coughs> five. Focus on widely shared democratic values, not individuals. In Argentina in 1987, a coup got started when an Air Force major, resenting attempts to democratize the military and bring it under civilian control, organized hundreds of soldiers at his base. While the civilian government tried to quietly negotiate a settlement, people took to the streets. Against the government's pleading, 500 regular citizens marched to the base with the slogan, Long Live Democracy, Argentina, Argentina. They could have spent the time <coughs> attacking the major. Instead, they were appealing to their fellow citizens to choose democracy. The major tried to keep them away with a tank, but the protesters entered the base anyway, and he knew that open firing on nonviolent civilians would cause him to lose more credibility. Soon, 400,000 people took to the streets in Buenos Aires to rally in opposition to the coup. Coups are not a time to just watch and wait until someone else figures it out. No matter who you are, you can be part of choosing democracy. This gave strength to the civilian government, which had largely been absent. <coughs> Civic organizations, the Catholic Church, business groups, and labor unions united under a pledge to support all ways possible the Constitution, the normal development of the institutions of government and democracy as the only viable way of life. The coup plotters lost their legitimacy and soon surrendered. This approach is different than protesters going in the street with a list of issues or a grievance against a vilified leader. Instead, it's exalting widely shared core democratic values. In our project, we, lose, we use the language of choosing democracy. This affirms another finding from the research on anti-coups. Because coups are an attack on the current institution, Loyalists to the traditional way, who may never join other movement causes, are open to joining actions in the street. That's if we make the invitation about democratic values they can connect with. Six, convince people not to just freeze or go along. Imagine that at your job, a corrupt boss gets fired and a new one is brought in. Instead of leaving, your old boss says, I'm still in charge, do what I say. A bunch of your coworkers say, we only take orders from the old boss. At that point, doubt arises. That doubt is how coups succeed. Enough people freeze. Even when only a few people go along with the coup and act as though it's normal, people may reluctantly accept it as inevitable. In all the research on preventing coups, there's one common theme people stop doing what the coup plotters tell them to do. What will it take to defend the election? Here's one winning strategy. In Germany, from military commanders to secretaries, they refused to obey the orders of the coup. In Mali, they called a nationwide strike. In Sudan, protesters shut down government-supported radio stations and occupied airport runways. All Venezuela 
In Venezuela, all shops were closed. This is very different than mass marches at the Capitol or street protests shutting down intersections. It's not about protest, but about getting people to reassert core values, like showing up at elected officials' offices to get them to agree to honor election results. And it's not about single points of action like marches in DC, but instead actions like mass strikes from youth and students refusing to go to work or school until all votes are counted. Coups are not a time to just watch and wait until someone else figures it out. No matter who you are, you can be part of choosing democracy. Seven, commit to actions that represent rule of law, stability, and nonviolence. Stopping a coup is dependent on the size of mobilizations and winning over the center. It is really a fight for legitimacy. Which voice is legitimate? Some people will have already made up their minds. The aim, then, is convincing those who are uncertain, which may be a more surprising number than you can expect. Mass resistance to coups wins by using walkouts and strikes, refusing orders, and shutting down civil society. To swing them to our side, that uncertain center has to be convinced that we represent stability and the coup plotters represent hostility to the democratic norms of elections and voting. We prevent that possibility when we dehumanize potential defectors, make sweeping statements like the police won't help, never encourage people to join our side, and create chaotic, chaotic streets, scenes on the street. Historically, whichever side resorts to violence the most tends to lose. In a moment of uncertainty, people pick the, the side that promises maximum stability, respects democratic norms, and appears to be the safer bet. It's a contest of who can be the most legitimate. Mass resistance to coups wins by using walkouts and strikes, refusing orders, and shutting down civil society until the rightful democratically elected leader is installed. For mass movements to succeed against coups, they should refuse to do violence to the other side. Eight, yes, a coup can happen in the United States. It may be hard to imagine that a coup could happen in this country. But whenever there's an order to stop counting votes, we call it a coup. Even by the strictest definition of coups, there has been a militar militarized coup in the United States. In 1898, after Reconstruction in Wilmington, North Carolina, seeing the rise of a prosperous and successful black population, white racists organized a coup. They gave rallying cries like, we will never surrender to a ragged raffle of Negroes, even if we have to choke the Cape Fear River with carcasses. Despite a terror campaign before the election, black turnout was high, and a slate of black candidates was voted in. Black power was met with white supremacist violence, with white squads killing 30 to 300 people, including newly elected officials. Over 3,000 blacks fled this extreme violence, and the era of Jim Crow began. Nine, centering calm, not fear. It's scary to believe we're having to talk about a federal coup in the United States, and we know that fearful people are less likely to make good decisions. Let's aim for calm and avoid hyperbole. Be a reliable source by double-checking rumors and spreading high-quality facts. Sure, read social media, but spend some time, you know, doing real things that ground you. Breathe deeply, remember how you handle fear, play out scenarios, but don't become captured by them. We're doing this to prepare, just in case. 10, prepare to deter a coup before the election. The best way to stop a coup is to never have one. People are doing lots of good work on issues of voting rights, urging turnout, stopping repression, uncovering fraud, and getting people to commit to democracy. That may be enough. The best way to stop a coup is to deter it. Another way to prepare is to get people into the mindset of taking action so they don't freeze. The classic formulation of this is the if this, then that model designed by the Pledge of Resistance. In that model, people prepare themselves for an action by saying, if it comes to this bad thing, then I'll act. By signing a pledge before the crunch moment, you get wider buy-in. In that spirit, Choose Democracy has created a pledge. One, 
we will vote. Two, we will refuse to accept election results until all the votes are counted. Three, we will nonviolently take to the streets if a coup is attempted. Four, if we need to, we will shut down this country to protect the integrity of the democratic process. You can sign the pledge to choose democracy and join with folks across the political spectrum. These public commitments ahead of time increase the political cost of attempting a coup because the best way to stop a coup is to deter it. So that's Daniel Hunter's article. You may or may not agree with Daniel Hunter's assessment. <clears throat> My question now is more of an inquiry about our spiritual community. What role, if any, do you think Appomattox should play in our civic life? And how should we think together specifically about our role in this election cycle? We'll have some uh, breakout groups where you can discuss these questions. Then when we return, Ellen will read some suggestions from Impact Austin, an interfaith group that focuses on the political process. So um, I'd like to set it up for us to have breakout rooms in groups of how many people do we have? 20, 25 people? Let's have groups of five. Um, and let's go until, let's see, 10.45. Does that seem like a good amount of time? Uh, then we can come back together and talk a little bit about what uh, discoveries we might have made. How does that seem? Okay, all right. So, um, so Anne will set us up with uh, breakout rooms and I know this is a lot to take in, and I know that's uh, it's powerful, but we need to really be talking about these issues and how we want to respond as a Sangha. <coughs> okay, I'd like to hear from folks, but I can see that it might be um, a little confusing, so maybe if you would raise, if stay muted and raise your hand and unmute yourself if you, uh, if you would like to say something, um, so. Um, <coughs> <clears throat> I can't see all the raised hands, so. If there's anything that came up in your breakout group that you wanted to share, that you heard, that you found uh, uh, interesting or helpful. Oh, Anne. I think one of the things that Kim brought up in our, our group was to, mm -hmm. as acting as Appamata, as a group, how do we find out what everybody in the group agrees on? Or do we want to do that? I mean, do we just want to present it as Peg Cyrus and the leader of Appamata or the councils of Appamata, but to say, here's a stand that Appamata takes how do you how do you find out okay how everybody feels that is a great great question <clears throat> i first wanted to open this discussion to get an idea of what the community feels <clears throat> and i can understand that there would be different points of view that there are people who are very very um politically active in other ways that prefer Appamata to be a kind of a respite or a refuge where they, they can mm -hmm. be relieved of that. And that is certainly always going to be a good use of the Sangha. <clears throat> However, there is also a question of who we are in the larger community and in the larger world and what we want to um, uh, offer as a way of acting in that world or being in that world. And my sense of that is to get a feeling for what the Sangha itself you know, through these, these kinds of discussions, what folks in the Sangha are feeling about this, <clears throat> and maybe even open up some things online where we can uh, discuss it a little bit. But I think then, um, since it's a programmatic kind of decision, um, it would be uh, discussed in the councils what specific actions might be recommended. And certainly nothing would be required of anybody. But <clears throat> we might say, as a Sangha, we would like to offer uh, let's say uh, that there's going to be some action of people um, uh, showing up in the streets. Um, do we want to show up as a uh, rather than a disparate group of individuals? So 
so I think there's ways to do that, to say we will go out, as he says, you know, find five friends, but we may have more than five friends who want to mobilize in certain ways. So, but I think the councils would be the appropriate place for those decisions to be undertaken um, as to, because it's a programmatic issue, how the Sangha is programmatically. So just the same as we would, you know, talk about do we want to have an anti-racism program, uh, we, or do we want to have a family program, do we want to have a program of civic action? Um, and, uh, and in extraordinary times, might that be really essential because Years from now, we don't want to look back and say, well, what was our Sangha doing when all this was going on? Why was there no official response from the Sangha? I mean, that's certainly a question that would be in my mind 10 years down the road. What, what exactly was the role of the Sangha in, um, in asserting the stability of our democracy? <coughs> so, so part of it is that taking that long view and looking back at this time, who do we want to be and how do we want to come forward? Um, certainly, there are, we have people right in our sangha who have witnessed the effects of coups in other countries and the, um, the destruction to the social fabric that can be a part of that. So, uh, so I think the article was very interesting to me because he was talking about so much about how to deter that from happening, from starting even. So, probably the best medicine. Yeah. So, yeah, so Anne, that's a really good question and it's one... <coughs> that I believe is uh, the province of the councils, having taken and continuing to take the, um, the sort of measure of what the Sangha seems to feel is needed. But always, always the Dharma will provide a refuge for people who simply want to be still and silent and go inside. Um, that will always be offered. Joan has her hand raised. Oh, good, Joan, yeah. Uh, it's been very important to me that Appamata be apolitical mm -hmm. because I would like anyone who holds our values to feel comfortable and heard. And so I really liked what Daniel Hunter said when he said, do not focus on the individual, focus on democratic values. And I felt like that was very good guidance. Yes, because they have people you know, associated with that group who are on both ends of the political spectrum. Um, but they all believe in upholding democratic norms. So we all believe in fair elections. That's one thing. So I think it's important um, that that be the, the guiding principle, right? It's that it's about our shared values. because that's what brings people together of any political persuasion. We believe in the Constitution as a value. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Anne? Yeah, I was, we talked about in our group also, really being able to um, articulate the connection between Buddhist values and what it was we were trying to protect. I mean, just to say protecting democratic values, I think is a little too broad. Ah. I mean, a fair election seems right, but even the word fair to say one person, one vote, um, and, and to make, a clear, make it clearer to people that are listening to us and to ourselves, why a Buddhist would, why that would be important to a Buddhist. Yeah, because <clears throat> the Buddha's ethical teachings in the precepts and in the paramitas have to do not with how you be a good person. They have to do with how you create a harmonious society. So, um, so, having, so connecting with these shared democratic values is one of the ways we can have a harmonious society that has integrity. So, and those integ and the integrity is what part of what the precepts are, are detailing. So right now, the leadership of the country is in clear violation of almost all of the precepts, almost all of them. <clears throat> so that's a cause of concern because it leads society in a bad direction, in an unwholesome direction, in a direction of, of uh, fighting and rage and greed and 
uh, and ignorance. So that no Buddhist can really approve of that direction. So that's part of what I would say anyway, you know, that we, we take these precepts and we take the precept, the fundamental precept, to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. So that's part of what our democratic um, institutions are intended to protect. They haven't always operated that way. That is quite clear. But we continue to try and move in that direction. That's our aspiration. So the, you know, the Constitution is aspirational. The, you know, the rule of law is aspirational. We're always um, endeavoring to realize that aspiration, and we're always falling short. So yeah, I think that's, that's, those are very, very good points. How we articulate the ways in which our Buddhist values are um, al aligned or supportive of the democratic norms. Yeah. Um, Mirren has her hand raised. Oh, Mirren. Hi. Uh, I think in our group we also said that maybe a task force to associate uh, the principles to the democratic parts. <laughs> oh, fortunately we have that task force already. It's called Buddhist Action Now. Yes, exactly. And that's what uh, Ellen said, yeah, that, yeah. that that would be a good thing for the Buddhist Action Group to do, yeah. which is, yeah. that, that's all I wanted to say. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The um, one person, one vote thing is honoring all life. You know, it's really a way of honoring and respecting all beings and, uh, and refraining from causing harm. So it's a question of uh, mostly of just drawing those connections, you know, uh, so that it's clear as we uh, talk with folks why. You know, why would a Buddhist be concerned about politics? Aren't you just, you know, like, Meditating and studying your navel, you know. Um, I think Becky might have had a, a comment, and so does Kim. Oh, good. Okay. I don't. I. I'm. I think you're not raising your hands um, on the participant list, but you're just raising your hands physically. So I'm not noticing if you're not on my screen. Okay. Oh. Okay. So. So uh, one of the things that we were acknowledging in our group was that um, discussing it as, as directly as we did this morning, that a number of people felt the fear arise in them. Uh -huh. and, and I was saying, what a wonderful opportunity for us to face that fear before we're in the midst of that, which is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the, other, the other thing that, that I sort of, said was something that's been really true for me for a while now, especially the, the virus stuff topped it up for me. But, but what, what would I be willing to die for? Because you have to look at that fear and know that there's going to be stuff going on out there. It is right now with, with the, the various gatherings around racial wounds and so on. It's, it's always a possibility, right? Yeah. What would I be willing to die for? And, yeah. and this, this what we're looking at is something that that clearly would be for me and and the granny's response stuff at the border was one of the other ones that i felt that i can do because there are a lot of things out there that people are doing that i'd be willing to die for yeah but certain ones hit that point for me and this one does yeah and hopefully we wouldn't die we would just affect a positive change which is a, a positive outcome of that action whatever action but <clears throat> action is the antidote to fear. So any small action that you take begins to defeat fear and anxiety. And so that's why I read from the mother of the Buddha is the passage about, you know, Bodhisattva is never terrified or even subtly anxious. Uh, because you hold in your heart this, this prayer for all beings to be awakened um, and never to be separate from their true awakened consciousness. So, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think I have to go let a small puppy out, you know, and I have a, this creature that has a bladder the size of a pencil eraser, so there are limits. Um, it's wonderful to, to hear your reflections, and please send them to the list if you have any further thoughts or reflections about this 
topic. I'll send along the article and uh, what I said today. But meanwhile, Ellen has got something that um, I, as I said, comes from um, uh, Texas, Impact Texas. So, um, so it's it's some positive, concrete steps that folks can take. Yeah, and I wanted to say three things too, but I know Peg needs to leave. But one is uh, that uh, uh, democracy is not intrinsically the only way of Zen. And in Japan, uh, we had a situation at the Missouri Zen Center where the, where the head teacher would not listen to the board. And he claimed that in Japan, the head teacher is the benevolent dictator. You know, so, but I like the way Peg said it's a tool that we're, we've chosen to, to protect the Dharma. And the second is, um, we're going to, I want to talk to Ellen more this afternoon about this, but we're going to open up Buddhist Action Now, uh, put aside for now reading the book and make, make it, you know, able to fully focus on this issue. So, uh, start good. next Saturday. Yeah, good. And then... I think we have to get through the election cycle with as much energy as we can. Yes, and then the third thing is, is um, starting Thursday, October 1st, we're going to have a password for the things that are right now Appomattox coordinator, the Zoom meetings. And the password is Jizo, which is the name of our temple dog. J-I-Z-O with a capital J. So starting Thursday, you'll need that to log in to morning zazen, to anything that's not a practice discussion or an intensive or a uh, inquiry. So so my my personal Appomattox um, peg is not going to have a password or will have a password? It will be the same as it is now because it, it has a waiting room. Oh, okay. So so it doesn't need to have a password. Uh, oh, okay. We won't need to change that. We won't change inquiry. But okay. everything that now is Appomattox coordinator will not, will not work. Okay. You go to the calendar, and then when it says password, you type in Jizo. Okay. And that's just for the coordinator, or is that for everybody who's joining Zazen on Monday morning? Everyone who joins Zazen on Monday morning, who comes Wednesday night, who any of those things. So you'll send something out to tell the rest of the folks. I, This morning, yes. Okay, great. Yeah, this is all Zoom uh, security precautions so that we don't get Zoom bombed. Anne was Zoom bombed in another situation, and that just got us talking about maybe we ought to be proactive about this. Yeah, it can be quite unpleasant. And, and this is like a little measure. So I sent it what the password is on the email list, but hopefully just some random person from the outside isn't on the list and won't know. Won't know. Yeah. I think yeah. that's very unlikely. Yes. Sounds good. Okay. Okay, great. And Ellen's going to read from Texas Impact. Okay. Um, in um, Daniel Hunter's article, he said the best way to stop a coup is to not let it start. So that's what this is all about. Um, Dear Appamata, it's hard to keep calm and do anything when we're surrounded by messages and messengers encouraging us to panic. Americans of all political stripes are being bombarded with emails, social media, and news painting grim pictures of our upcoming election and its aftermath. We are being invited and encouraged to catastrophize we envision worst case scenarios so vividly that in effect we're already living in those imagined realities. Experts tell us there are two alternatives to catastrophic thinking. The first is rhapsodic thinking, where we delude ourselves into irrational thoughts that everything is going to be fine. Rhapsodic thinking, like catastrophizing, inhibits us from taking action. If everything is fine, we don't need to do anything. If everything is terrible, there's nothing we can do. Episodic thinking can start as a defense to catastrophizing, but it is just as, an, as disabling. The upcoming election demands that all of us avoid both of these traps. 
Instead, we need to think realistically and concretely about what actions we can take, setting aside disempowering thoughts about events and actions that are beyond our control. We can vote. Even if you are not yet registered to vote, you still can vote, but you need to do it soon. And it says go here to register or here to make sure your registration is current. And that would be sos.texas.gov for that information. This was mailed out a few days ago to, to everyone on the list. Yes. It should be in your emails and maybe we'll send it out again. You can help others vote safely. The more polling locations are, the more polling locations are open and the more days they are open, the safer voting will be for vulnerable people and the more chances working people will have. Go here to sign up to work the polls in your county. And that would be powerthepolls.org. And again, we'll send this out again. You can bear witness to the process. You can monitor one or more polling locations and let authorities know if voters are having problems. Go here to volunteer as a poll monitor. Note that you do not have to commit to a full day to participate. I looked into this one and there are three ways you can be a monitor. One is on site. One is in your car going to various places, different polls, and one is just texting people. Um, and that would be protectthevote.net. We don't ask you to do anything we won't do. Every Texas Impact staff member is signed up to work, work or monitor the polls on election day and so forth. And then it says, um, America knows how to hold elections. Texas knows how to hold elections. Your county knows how to hold elections. We can do this. Just keep calm. Love, be Moorhead. So I thought that was encouraging. There's something we can do right now. It's true. And the one thing we can do right now is service. 